Hello, everyone. And today we're going to continue our, our look through the history of the church through the Middle Ages. And in this particular lecture, we're going to focus on the uh, appearance of universities and the rise of scholasticism, the scholastic movement or method uh, within the Christian church as well. Uh, so the appearance of universities um, was a unique feature that appeared in the Middle Ages for Europe. Um, in a sense, there were universities in the, uh, the Islamic world prior to the rise of universities in Europe. Uh, you had the Al-Hazar University in Cairo or the University of uh, Al-Qarawiyan in Fez, Morocco. And since these were madrasas or uh, religious or educational institutions for higher learning in the Islamic world, um, in, in some scholars debate the term universities that apply to them and such. But uh, in a sense, yeah, there were uh, in the Islamic East uh, great centers of educational learning. Now, in Europe... The prior to the rise of universities, uh, students were educated in monastic schools. Um, you had the monks who would uh, who would who would uh, bring in these future uh, novitiates or oblates into uh, these young students, these young boys into the monastic centers, to teach them uh, the basics, uh, and then eventually. What that eventually the next phase was the rise of cathedral schools, um, in a sense that next to a major cathedral center, uh, you would have the local bishop uh, educating uh, the next phase, the next uh, generation of clergymen uh, as these young boys learning the uh, the sacraments, learning uh, the writings of the church fathers and the scriptures, the lectionary and such, uh, and learning uh, some basic languages and, and uh, other aspects. Um, now, what's interesting too is that prior to universities, you also had wandering teachers, and these wandering teachers would attach themselves to certain cathedral schools. We'll see those individuals like Peter Abelard and such, and they would be famous for uh, going from certain locations, certain locations, uh, and and collecting a fee for educating students for a period of time. Now, universities began to appear, in a sense, around the 12th century. Now, universities, when they began to form, formed in a way kind of like guilds. Uh, it was a common uh, common kind of a community of teachers and students as a form of an organization to protect and have laws and rules and regulations. Uh, and so they think of it in a sense as a medieval guild early on and began to formulate into a university. Um, the two main uh, universities to appear was at Bologna in northern Italy and Paris in northern France. Uh, Bologna was known for its focus on law. Uh, especially with uh, Gratian organizing writing what's called the Decretum, which took all of canon law and all the contradictions and all the the, the laws and, uh, that took place and organized it uh, and help uh, formulate it together to make it easy under, understood. So, and then Paris was known for its uh, for its theology. Its university there was known for its theology. Uh, many other universities began to spring up, like in uh, Salerno, uh, in Montpellier, in Oxford. Uh, focusing on different areas. Um, so you had some that were primarily driven, like Oxford was known for its science and mathematics. Uh, Salerno, Montpellier were known for its medicine, focus on medicine, but there were, you could still have a theological education, a legal education in those schools, but they had primarily areas of, of major focus. Um, they still also taught the uh, the trivium and quadrivium. Right? Remember in a previous lecture, I talked about the trivium is rhetoric, grammar, logic, 
uh, with uh, the quadrivium being the uh, kind of like the the arts in a sense. You have music, you have arithmetic, geometry, uh, and astronomy. Um, so you had those were taught as well in university systems. The way it worked primarily was you didn't you had a set class that you had to attend regardless. You could pick the teacher, you couldn't really necessarily pick the class. You had to go through certain classes uh, to get your uh, certification completed. Uh, you get your university completed. Um, so by from the 12th century to the 1500s, universities exploded across uh, Western Europe, um, where, where about 80 universities uh, existed. Universities uh, played a, a pivotal role in, in church life and in church organization because it was a way in which uh, you can educate your clergymen. They can be taught in not only in scripture, but in logic and rhetoric and, and law. And therefore, now you have uh, someone that can play an important role in managing the organization, the bureaucracy of the church, if you will, uh, throughout Christendom. And so you have this educated elite also that can play a role in enforcing church law. And so as the papacy is increasing in its prestige and power in this time period, by this point, um, these universities uh, play a role in producing uh, educated clergymen who are part of the church itself, who can then in turn understand the law, understand writing and finances and such, and play a critical role in organizing and dealing with church law and legal matters and church affairs. Um, and so universities also began to not only focus on creating uh, leadership, educated leadership for the church, but also creating educated leadership for the laity as well, as you could send your child through these universities, they can know law and then come out they, you may not have a full completed bachelor's degree, but in a sense, you may come out with advanced knowledge. And so merchants, we see a rising of, in a sense, a middle bureaucratic class. You see the rise of merchants, uh, intelligent artisans, uh, uh, legal scholars uh, that play a role in, different, in the different many European kingdoms as well. So universities uh, has that critical function by this point, producing that middling class that will help shape further the transformations that we see in the Reformation and Renaissance and Reformation later on as well. So the structures of universities, uh, they're organized into different departments, kind of like what we see today in early form. You have theology, law, medicine, arts, sciences. Um, theology was the queen of the sciences, what you the queen of the faculties, what you the goal primarily of attending these universities at this early point. Um, for a student coming into the universities, the average age was anywhere between 14 and 15. Like I said, it, it really, when you're looking at specifics, it depends on the university. It depends on the time period. And so there are variations. Um, so, but you, normally it's 14, 15. Uh, the requirement, there is no like set requirement to come into a university. Uh, you had to pay a fee and you pretty much should know Latin. There wasn't an examination to get in, but you should know Latin because that Latin was the, the language of the educated. You can converse with your teacher. You can converse with your fellow classmates. And by it being Latin, a student from, let's say, Southern France could travel to uh, Southern England and travel to Oxford or an Italian, Northern Italian might be able to travel to uh, Paris for their education. So by having that Latin fluency, you can, ed you can then uh, have a discourse with your teacher, with your classmates, um, whenever you travel to university, you're kind of, uh, you were put into, uh, you're organized based on your nationality. So you're grouped together. You had certain rules of different universities had that certain nationalities had to wear certain clothing to be identified, which group they were part of. Um, and this can led to, uh, jokingly stereotyping each other, you know, as college students would do in, in, 
and making fun of and attacking one another and stereotyping one another. Uh, another requirement is that you had to be unmarried to enter a university. Some students could did get married along the way, um, but you weren't able to attain your bachelor's degree and you couldn't, uh, you also lost your protected status as a cleric. So as a uh, as a student, you were considered part of the clergy. You were technically protected by church law. And this can create a unique situation because uh, remember, there's a two dual court system. There's the secular courts and the church courts. And so um, if you, as a young student, you're protected by church law, you can, you're, you know, you, all you really did was pay a fine in certain extenses. You had greater protection and greater rights than someone through a secular court system. Uh, so students were known to be rowdy and raucous uh, after after classes and such, going to the tavern or brothels and getting into fights and picking fights because they knew, you know, you know, touch me, can't touch me, bro, kind of attitude. Uh, because if you did get into an altercation with a student that's technically a clerk, um, you could be excommunicated. Um, and to get that excommunicated revoked or have it appealed, having to go to the papacy, it takes months, years to get a resolution on that. So, of course, you know, some towns and communities were able to make agreements with the universities to have a balance of affairs and rights, but students were always known to be a troublesome element in the universities. They could go on strikes um, um, and be a rowdy, ruckus bunch. Uh, the academic year was was longer uh, initially, 11 months. There was times that were set aside for Christmas or Lent and Easter. Uh, and like I said, fluctuates between time period and universities you look at because universities are a little structured differently and, and their requirements are structured just a little differently. Uh, but we're trying to average it out uh, to get your bachelor's degree. It took five to six years to do so. And you had to uh, do multiple things. You had to at least be able to write a commentary on a theological textbook known as Pierre Lombard Sentences. You also had to be able to successfully engage in a disputation with your professor. Um, to get your master's and doctorates, depending, like I said, on the university and the time period, anywhere from 11 to 15 years, roughly, uh, that is a much more uh, difficult examination. At this point, you had to lead a class. Um, you had you were supervised by another professor uh, as you led a class, you lectured, um, got involved in disputations, and then you had to pass an, a board of examination that tested not only your knowledge, but your moral character as well. So getting your master's and doctorate was extremely difficult at this point, too. Not impossible, but it was difficult. Now, the methods of education university, um, with, with, there was two modes. One, you had the lecture. And then you had the disputation. Now, the lecture, pretty much straightforward. Uh, the teacher would take out scripture or take out letters from the church father or Peter Lombard's sentences or Aristotle's work or Plato's work, and they would conduct a series of lectures on it. They would read the text and comment on the text, and students would be required to take notes. You had pen and paper. They were copying down everything the teacher is saying, taking copious notes on the material. The other method of education was the disputation. And this disputation varies. So sometimes it might be uh, the teacher will pose a contradiction to the students. Um, really, all it is, is it's to engage the students' as critical thinking and logic skills to how to work through problems. So, for example, the teacher might say, OK, one part of scripture says, you know, we know that God cannot die. God's eternal. But then how can God's son die on the cross? And so he would pose this to a student and the student would then have to engage uh, each of those of those theses, the pros and cons of which 
and and try to argue from one particular side or the other. And the, the teacher would then take both of those and take what the student has said, make comments to what the arguments the students proposed, and then summarize and then pro- provide a synthesis for those two contradicting points. Another aspect the teacher might do is give a thesis statement, you know, just a blanket statement and then offer to the crowd because disputations were also public events to, for them to engage that thesis. And this teacher would go into kind of a debate and argue the points. While this disputation is taking place, a student had to be required to take all these notes down. And then the teacher would have to go through that night, go through the documentation of it, and then kind of prevent, uh, a, develop a report on what was discussed, the thesis, the different arguments and answers, and the synthesizing of what the answer actually can be. So these were the modes of education that was taught in universities. Um, and so it provided that sense of trying to get students to think critically and logically through difficult texts, through different authors and different works, um, and to have that independent thinking mindset. Now, scholasticism appears uh, in prior actually to the birth of universities. We have, you know, there's different time periods of scholastic. You have the early scholastics, the high scholasticism and the late, late scholasticism. Um, even then you have medieval scholasticism and reform scholasticism. So there's different types. Uh, scholasticism sometimes in a way gets a bad name for itself um, because there's, a, there's in a sense a scholastic theology because you have the medieval scholastic theology, but there's also a scholastic method. So for example, the method in a sense is just like a disputation. You have a particular thesis or a question. Think back to Martin Luther's 95 thesis uh, and you offer it up for debate. So you have a thesis you address rebukes, you know, you, you list all the rebukes of that thesis or oppositions of that, that statement. And then you address your answer and then you address your answers to those objections. And so there's in a sense, a method and a process through working through it. And we see this not only in the medieval scholastics, but also the reformed scholastics later on. There is a scholastic theology in essence um, that ties it within itself. It's medieval, uh, uh, medieval counterparts you know, with the different sacraments and such and within the um, the Catholic tradition at this point, that does have problems and flaws. Uh, later on, the Reformed classics will take the method, not so much the theology. They'll take aspects like metaphysics and such, depending on the Reformed scholastic you're looking at um, to address that. Now, scholasticism, what was its ultimate and ultimate goal in a sense was to really focusing on both faith and reason. Um, they didn't just dispel reason and logic altogether. Their their goal was to use faith and reason together to, for example, prove the existence of God, um, to work through different aspects of scripture. Uh, they provided, in a sense, also these earliest classics, a way to systematize Christian doctrine and teaching. Because prior to this, there wasn't a systematic theology book. Like today, you can go to any bookstore anywhere online in any denomination really and get a copious book that systematizes Christian teaching. So, you know, explains who God is, the Trinity, Christ's sin, salvation, sacraments, eschatology, church authority, ecclesiology. There wasn't in a sense, anything like that prior to Peter Lombard's sentences. There are like, you can argue maybe origins works in some way, systematize Christian thought, but there wasn't an actual, systematic theology work that you could really rely on that covers all aspects. But now with scholastics, they began to focus on organizing Christian doctrine and teaching with these systematic theologies or these summas that we'll see. 
they sought to also answer uh, theological questions and philosophical questions. They were they they were interested in understanding, for example, proving the existence of God, proving the Trinity that can, in some ways, and depending, not all scholastics agreed, as we're going to look at different individuals, not all of them agreed with one another on how that can be conducted. Some uh, thought that faith and reason can work together or faith, uh, faith first and reason later, or that they should be completely separate. And that they don't work together. But in all in some ways, we're trying to answer both deep theological questions and deep philosophical questions at the same time. So uh, another point that we have to kind of go over is different modes of thought in the scholastic community. Um, there's So I'm going to explain the two modes, and then I'll explain its kind of development. So there's... It's not a dichotomy, not like two systems. It's more like a think of like a political spectrum, you know, from left leaning to right leaning and such. Um, you had this, you had this uh, scholastic spectrum where you had the nominalists and the realists on either end. The realists would argue that the universals are more real; that these are real entities than individual things. So when I think say universals like goodness, humanity, or humanness. Um, those are universals. So in, in, a, in a way, think of, of rock music, the genre of rock music. Yes, there are individual songs. There's bands, rock bands. But in, in, a, in a realist would say that, yes, those are real things, but the rock music is more real than the bands or the individual songs that are, that are part of the rock music genre. Even though I can't see it, touch it with, through my senses, I know that rock music genre is a real entity that I can say with a certain with, in a certain sense that is real, and realism is is comes from and the influenced by Plato and Platonism. Nominalism is kind of a counterpoint to that, in that individual things are more real than universals. That we just simply collect things together into we have collections of things. But we give names to those collections, but the individual things in those collections are more real. So thinking of music again, think of like a playlist you make, like a road trip CD or a road trip playlist. Um, the songs on that road trip list are more real than the fact that it's a road trip list. That The road trip list is just a name you give to the collection of it. But the individual songs or bands or whoever you have on that playlist, that's more real. And so this kind of developed from Aristotle's teachings and viewpoints. And there, you have to understand, too, this also has implications on a person's theology. Because, for example, let's take an extreme nominalist, right? And like I said, this is a spectrum. You can have somebody like right in the middle, someone leans a little nominalist or leans a little realist, or someone's an extreme on either end or has, and then maybe breaking down the theology, certain viewpoints on different aspects of theology. So you can't, it's really hard to kind of box these classics into particular viewpoints, but some are extreme in their views too. So let's say, for example, an extreme nominalist. An extreme nominalist might deny aspects of divine or divinity, uh, or might deny the aspect uh, in a sense of the Trinity that the, the three persons are more real than the individual one. And that, and so that nominalist viewpoint will then percolate into those how we understand theology so these are important so do, you know don't discount understanding what realism and nominalism is um early on in the church 
with philosophers. Plato was viewed more so as a, a stronger ally to the church in defending uh, philosophically ideas about God and Christ. Um, and the church was very much heavily more pro-Plato than Aristotle. Now, Aristotle was known, um, thanks to Boethius, uh, who translated in Latin uh, Aristotle's work on logic, but a lot of Aristotle's work was lost uh, to the West for centuries. Um, and it wasn't until with the rise of uh, the Islamic Golden Age and the uh, Islamic authors like Avicenna and Averroes who recorded Aristotle's work from Greek to Arabic. And that document uh, uh, moved on into Europe and was translated from Arabic to Latin was Aristotle finally reintroduced to, uh, to the West. Um, initially, Aristotle was viewed with suspicion because Aristotle and many of his writings talk about the earth being eternal, uh, the soul uh, you know, ceasing to exist after someone dies. Um, so there was there's contradictions with bringing Aristotle into, into the church as a defense and understanding for reasoning. Uh, but by the 13th century, what begins to happen is that his ideas begin more and more begin to be approved and and more so understood than Plato, especially in the realm of metaphysics and such. Um, and so they begin to incorporate that more and more and see Aristotle instead of as a, an, an enemy, as an ally as well, that can help uh, lift up Christian doctrine and Christian teaching and understanding. So now we're going to look at different scholastics. So like I said, I'll try to make sure to point out the early, high, and late scholastics. Um, and we'll talk about each of them who they are, what they did, and what their key thoughts were. Now, regardless, if there's any of that interests you, more than happy, you know, look at their books, look at their writings, dive into their teachings. Uh, they are all in each and their own way influential in some in some aspects of development of church teaching. So, for example, Anselm of Canterbury, he was known as the Magnificent Doctor. Every Most of these guys have a unique title that, you know, like Augustine was the Doctor of Grace. So I'll try to make sure to incorporate their titles along the way. So he was known as the Magnificent Doctor, I uh, was born in Northern Italy, uh, my, was a prior to universities in the early, he was the first of the schoolmen. He was the early, first of the early scholastics. Um, he was educated in Northern France, um, and then he became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he was heavily influenced by Augustine. Mo and like most of these scholastics were, a uh, few of them were not, many of them were heavily influenced by Augustine. Um, Augustine said in his works that he, that you, he believes or believes so that you might understand. And Anselm takes that and kind of phrases as that faith seeks understanding, that the center point should be faith, not reason, but faith. Faith should lead to reason, but in faith should grow to understanding. But faith is the center point first, more so. Um, and his most important works was, for example, the monologion and the proslogion. Uh, what that work entails in a sense is proving the existence of god he believes god exists he has faith that god does exist but seeking to understand how god exists and so he de develops this ontological argument that for example that god is something greater than which cannot exist or that god is the most perfect being and if god did not exist then he would not be the most perfect being. Because he is the perfect being, he has to exist to in turn be perfect. And there's a lot of interlaying and interplaying of those arguments and such, and not to not to get lost in them. But it is important work, and it's still debated by philosophers and theologians today about Anselm's teachings about the proof of the existence of God. 
The other important work that he has is the Cur Deus Homo, which why the God become man or why the God man. Um, what this work entails is how how is it logical that God becomes man? Why why is it important that God became incarnated and had to die? What you know the logicalness of both the incarnation and the atonement. And Anselm kind of lays out the argument that God is infinite, perfect, infinite majesty, infinite perfection, and sin is an outrage against the infinite majesty and infinite perfection of God. And because of the high level of that out, outrage, the infinitude of sin, uh, man is, un, as a finite, is unable to pay for the infinitude of sin, and therefore it requires that an infinite being, a divine being in essence, uh, is able to complete the payment. So it requires that God does become man in a sense. There's a logical application to it. And also argues against this idea that paying a ransom to Satan, it's in a sense paying it back to God that to pay for the outrage of the wickedness of sin. So these are important early establishment works in scholastic thought using both reason and logic with faith, but faith being the center's supreme point. Um, the uh, the other in, this well, this one is a very interesting figure. Uh, Peter Avalard uh, comes a little later, uh, and Peter Avalard uh, was born in northern France in 1079. Now Avalard is a uh, unique figure. We we know a lot about his life thanks to his own autobiographical work, where he writes the history of my misfortunes or the history of my calamities. Uh, he was a brilliant young man who uh, would hang out in front of his teacher's classrooms as the students were coming in to show how smart he was. Like, I don't need to be in this class. I can now argue the professor. I can now argue the teacher. Um, uh, the reason why his book was titled The History of My Misfortunes was because as he was well known for his intelligence and his teaching skills. And uh, he was a tutor to a friend of his uh, uh a friend of his uh, niece named Heloise and he fell in love with Heloise and he um uh he you know Mary at this time uh the papacy was trying to stamp down uh a marriage for a clergy and so engaging in a, this affair Heloise ended up getting pregnant um and and Abelard wanted to secretly marry either he did or he wanted to um but nonetheless when the uncle found out it was a, considered a scandal and so Avalard, in this midst of trying to get the scandal resolved, sent her to a convent to kind of protect her. Uh, but the uncle thought that he was trying to get rid of her. And so he had his men go and had Avalard castrated <laughs> as a result. And so Avalard then kind of in his own shame ended up in a monastery. And then later on, because of uh, heresy charges thrown against him, he would remain permanently in a monastery for the rest of his life. Um he did argue that everything we believe should be logical and reasonable because truth comes from God. Since all truth is comes from God and it's good, it's true. In a sense, we can logically and reasonably discover those truths even without faith. So I don't need divine revelation. I don't need uh, a supernatural revelation to, um, to understand the Trinity. I can by logic and reason, understand and come to the conclusion of the trinity trinity because it's true it's true because it comes from god um his most famous work is sick at none which means yes and no and what this work does it takes um different theological questions about 158 theological questions and it has these questions 
and then it pits scripture and church fathers against each other, showing that how they kind of contradict in their their answering of those questions. And so what he's trying to do is have his readers think through and help summarize and using logic come to conclusions from those questions, seeing the opposition from scriptures and church fathers. But it's actually the first attempt to really systematize theology because it's grouping uh, Christian doctrines and teachings under ideas. Um, he does make other advancements or ideas uh, as well. He redefines sin in a sense that sin is tied more so to our intentions uh, than our acts, that there are no universals. Uh, and so this develops into what's known as moral relativism. Uh, with his understanding of atonement, he agrees with Anselm on the understanding of atonement, but he also adds to it saying that God sent Christ to die on the cross as an example of God's love for humanity. And it's meant to draw humanity back through that example of love. And so it's known as exemplarism. Uh, Avalard uh, runs afoul of a man named Bernard of Clairvaux, who we talked about in the previous lecture. Uh, Bernard pretty much accuses Avalard of being an Arian on the Trinity, an Historian on Christ, and a Pelagian on salvation. So none of those are good standings to have. Um, and many different scholars debate on whether or not those arguments and accusations are true. Uh, but nonetheless, Avalard is pretty much forced into a monastery as punishment for some of the heretical teachings that he does have throughout his many different works. So we move in a sense, we're still in the early scholastic phase, but we're going to be shifting over into the uh, high scholastic phase here in a second. But it's thanks in the, really to, to Peter Lombard. Uh, Peter Lombard is known as the father of systematic theology. He was born in Italy. He was educated in Bologna. Uh, remember, Bologna was the center of law. Uh, and so he has that influence of that systematized thought taking place with canon law. His most important work that comes down to us today, uh, his most central work is the four books of sentences. What this does, this book takes uh, topics, sentences, and organizes all of Christian doctrine around it. So topics like sin, salvation, uh, statements from scripture, church fathers and stuff. And so, so it takes these topics and in turn organizes all of like Augustine's comments on sin or Jerome's comments on sin or, or, or you know, it organizes scripture responses to that as well. So it organizes all these different various theological viewpoints under these different topics. In his work also, what's important is that he also are, organizes the, the seven sacraments. Um, now, he didn't create the seven sacraments. The seven sacraments, in a way, existed in throughout Christendom. It just wasn't systematized. Um, you know, it obviously developed over time wasn't in existence in the early church it appeared with the uh with the spreading of the parish church networks the incorporation of new uh conquered lands and peoples within to christendom itself the adoption of certain practices that began to become widespread across the lay piety um, as more and more lay people began to kind of settle down and, and focus on those villages as the client, as the uh, economic, um, economic uh, recovery and revival began to take place in this point between the 11 and 1300s, because it was an economic boom that was happening, uh, more and more people began to have time to focus in on on these different aspects. So you see the appearance in ways of many of these early sacraments and ideas. And but 
Uh, Peter Lombard organizes it, you know, with, you know, baptism, confirmation, uh, communion, ordination, marriage, penance, and extreme unction. So, or last rites. So all these were laid out in the, um, in the, in the, uh, uh, four books of sentences. Oh, skipped one. So now we kind of move from the early scholastics to the high scholasticism. So one of the individuals is Alexander of Hales, known as the irrefutable doctor. Uh, he was a Francis Franciscan, which I know we haven't covered the Franciscans yet. That's in the next lecture. Uh, just know that they were a monastic order, a, mendic a mendicant monastic order in the sense that they, you know, lived on, lived poverty and, you know, needed, uh, lived on almsgiving to, to survive. Uh, tied with Francis of Assisi. Uh, but nonetheless, Franciscan theologian in 1236, he was a teacher at the Paris University by this point. Uh, his work that comes down to is actually a commentary on Pierre Lombard's sentences. And what Alexander Hales does is he's the first one to actually utilize Pierre Lombard's sentences as a theological textbook in the university. And so from then on, it's a boon to use Peter Lombard's sentences as a kind of the main theological textbook throughout most all the universities across Europe. Uh, his commentary uh, quotes, once again, quotes many different church authors uh, and church fathers. You know, he quotes Augustine 6,000 times in his work. But what he's trying to do is he's summarizing, again, uh, Peter Lombard's sentences, all the, the major points and topics. He's creating a commentary and a summary on different points that are brought up in Peter Lombard's sentences. Um, there is a flaw, though. There is a flaw to Peter Lombard's sentences, I should mention last slide, was when you take snippets, you know, you take things out of context. So when you're peeling scripture out of its out of its chapter, out of its book, out of its genre, or you're taking church fathers out of their letters and you're quoting them, um, you're not providing the context for it. You can you can misconstrue what they're saying in multiple ways. So that's the problem with those the the work those type of works. Um, some important things that Alexander of Hales did was he uh, developed the doctrine of the treasury of merits. Uh, this idea that the actions of Jesus and disciples and such built up this system of merits that can be applied. Uh, he also developed the idea of priests absolving people of guilt through penance. And so Alexander of Hales is, was vehemently opposed by the Protestant reformers later on in their writings attacking Alexander of Hales. Uh, you have Bonaventura or Bonaventura. Uh, he was born Giovanni di Fendenza uh, in Tuscany, Italy. Also joined the Franciscans. He was actually studied and a student under Alexander of Hales. He would end up leading the Franciscan order and write a short biography on the life of Francis of Assisi. Uh, he was another champion of medieval Augustinianism. Um, but Bonaventure is more of a mystic uh, than a straight scholastic. He was kind of a, kind of a mixture of both. Uh, he understood in a sense that reason could not truly, you could not truly know God through reason. It is by faith that you could truly know God and that emphasizing that spiritual experience through the soul to attain to the knowledge of God. Um, you couldn't do that through reason. Now he didn't, didn't uh, get rid of reason. Um, so for example, like he came into conflict with Aristotle's teaching about the eternal eternality of the world, that the world's always existed. And to refute Aristotle's work, he actually uses logic and reason to do so. Um, he he rates Plato higher than Aristotle. So like I said, he does use logic and reason, but in his writings, especially on the journey of the mind 
to God, um, he says that, you know, the, the mind needs to escape, you know, viewing the temporal realities to the internal realities through inner contemplation. And through that, the soul can move through that experience to understanding the divine. Um, and so his thoughts and writings do influence Catholic mysticism in the 14th, 15th centuries, and in some ways influence the Protestant reformers as well. Now we have uh, really the, the focal point um, of the scholastic movement, the high point with Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is usually the one everybody thinks of when you mention a scholastic, usually the first person one somebody brings up. And I think in some way that's either because you view him as kind of a either a villain, uh, a hero, or somewhere in the middle, um, depending on your viewpoint with Thomas Aquinas. Uh, now, Thomas Aquinas was born in 1225 near Aquino, Naples, uh, in southern Italy. Uh, he joined the Dominicans, which was another mendicant order. Uh, his against the uh, against the uh, uh, against his family's wishes, pretty much as family tried multiple different ways to prevent him from joining the mendicant order. Uh, but he was very intelligent, even as a, even as a young man, very asking, probing, deep uh, questions like who or what is God and such at the ages of four or five and such. So he was a very young, brilliant, insightful young man um, who studied at different universities of Naples and Paris and Cologne. Uh, primarily studied under Albertus Magnus or Albert the Great. In a sense, it's scholastic, but scholastic we don't really have time to cover. Um, who was uh, Albert Magnus was very much a, a fan of Aristotle's works. Um, Aquinas was uh, attacked by his students as being the dumb ox, and Albert Magnus defended his students, saying that this dumb ox would shake the world. And in some ways, yes, that Thomas Aquinas did do that with his with his works. Um, Aquinas's focus in, in his work overall is seeking to use both faith and reason that through Aristotle's reasoning and logic, not everything that Aristotle taught, but in, through that we can achieve the highest level of reasoning that possibly that you can possibly do in nature, that in your reasoning capabilities, you can achieve the highest form of understanding. So you can know God through reason. But to know things like the Trinity, you must then go ahead and go, you need faith and divine revelation to go beyond that. So faith in its reason is a high point, but faith is even higher that you can use both and work with them in tandem to gain greater understanding of the knowledge of God and greater understanding and contemplating who God is and living the Christian life. So that was that he was seeking to reconcile both Catholic and Aristotle's teaching and also reconcile Aristotle with Augustine as well. Um, he developed a theory of nature and grace. Uh, so, for example, that when um, God created man, he created man with the nature and sense that human, uh, that body, soul, motion, reason. Uh, and all these are in tension together. And so God also incorporated grace into Adam. And so grace removes that tension. And so when Adam fell, grace was taking, a, grace was one of those things that was taken away from Adam. And so now human uh, body, soul, emotion, reason are all in tension with one another. What that does is too, is allows for Thomas to argue that human intellect is capable and is not totally imperfect to attain high levels of reasoning and understanding. Um, you know, there's, a, there's also other aspects of the nature and grace we, we don't have time to get into. Um, he also had developed two important works, the Summa, the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is a work for Christians to understand Christian doctrine and defend Christian doctrine against non-Christians like Jews and Muslims. He also developed the Summa Theologica. 
which was his kind of his magnum opus. It's a work that, like Lombard's Genesis, it organized its uh, systematic thought into different topics. You have a particular question or thesis that follows with objections, his answer, and then his rebuke to those objections. So it's one of the really most um, massive, in a sense, system theological works. Unfortunately, he doesn't complete it. Um, he die he dies a little after he uh, after after he has this he has this kind of mystical experience and realizes that all his work at this point in a sense has been a waste it's trivial and then a short time later after he stops he dies um, so the summa that we have today is is in some sense an incomplete work but in that work it lays out many of Thomas's ideas he also wrote many different commentaries too mm-hmm. uh, he developed arguments for God's existence known as the five proofs. In a sense that world God is the primary cause and that world is the effect. There are other inner layers to it as well. Um, he also had a theory for the analogy for knowing God. So uh, because we can only attain knowledge through our senses, that I can attain knowledge that there's a God through my senses. The, the analogy I use to describe God. So if I say God is strong or God is good, it's not a perfect meaning of God being strong or good because it's only based on my senses and what I know as a human being as being strong or good. It's not that it's wrong. It's just, it's an imperfect meaning. Um, and so that, that was his theory of analogy and ties in with his philosophy and his theology. He was also the first uh, theologian to organize and systematize transubstantiation. Now transubstantiation has already been uh, decreed with the La- fourth Lateran council of 1215 uh, it was also even the term was used by uh, Hildebert of Tours in the 11th century. So it's already the words already been in existence, but Thomas Aquinas organizes how to understand it. So the way he lays it out is that everything uses Aristotelian terms, uses Aristotle terms of accidents. Everything has an accident and a substance, a substance. So an accident is the things you can see through your senses, you know, taste, touch, smell, hear. It's, it's, you know, the, you know, you, how you identify yourself. I wear glasses, have a beard, wearing a shirt. Those are your accents. The substance is the inner reality, your inner reality. Um, And so what he argues is that the bread and the wine in the Eucharist, uh, after it receives its blessing, becomes, turns into the body and blood of Christ in its substance. The accidents remain the same. The taste of bread, the, the taste of the wine, the smell, the touch. All those remain, the accidents remain the same. It's the it's the substance that change. Now, it's not even a physical transformation because in, in Aquinas' argument, it's a non-physical transformation. Um, it can only be, the substance can only be perceived by one's intellect or faith. Uh, that That's how you're able to partake of, of, the, uh, of the Eucharist. So if you don't have the intellect or faith, even with the blessing changing it, you cannot partake of that substance as well. So with the Eucharist or Mass, he also uh, distinguishes it as a sacrament, as a sacrifice. It's a sacrament in a sense because it's still bestowing that grace upon you. Um, it's also a sacrifice because it is, uh, it's still, re- in a sense, renewing the sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross. He also develops the doctrine of mortal and venial sins um, that Mortal sins are sins that kill the soul, but venial sins are sins that wound the soul. Mortal sins can only be uh, healed by divine grace. 
uh, while the Neil sins can only be uh, healed by doing penance. Uh, so he organizes and develops those doctrines. He also develops the doctrine of merits of the saints and indulgences. So taking the treasury merits one step forward, forward and that the saints uh, have, uh, in a sense, because they have gone above and beyond what was required of them, they have incurred more merit. And that merit can be applied by the Pope, by the Pope and the papacy as an indulgence onto other individuals. So helping to reduce the time in purgatory and such. Thomas Aquinas' work is, like I said, highly influential. Um, many people today love him, hate him, or indifferent to him. Uh, but nonetheless, his work comes down to us known as Thomism. And in some ways has influenced both Catholicism and Protestantism. Like I said, everybody has their own particular viewpoints in how they want to relate or understand with Thomas Aquinas and his works. Now, so we leave the high scholastic age and we, leave, we move more into what's called late scholasticism. Um, and we're going to look at two figures in particular, uh, John Duns Scotus and then William of Ockham. Now, John Duns Scotus is known as the subtle doctor, and that's kind of a, a teasing, insulting term because nothing about John Duns Scotus is subtle. He's, he's the philosopher's philosopher. He has the most uh, complicated uh, thought on, on the existence of God. Um, he was a Scottish theologian who joined the Franciscan order. He lectured from 1297 to 1307 at Oxford and Paris universities. Um, and so pretty much these late scholastics are, they stand in opposition to the, the in some ways, the early scholastics, but primarily Thomas Aquinas. Um, so for example, John Descotes argues against where Aquinas was using both faith and reason together, that they can work and interrelate to each other. Uh, John Descotes says that reason can't establish the existence of God, or in a sense, can't establish the existence of the God, the Christian God. You might by reason be able to prove that there is some form of God, but you cannot prove that God does, that the Christian God exists. You can't prove that Trinity exists through reason. Um, only faith can do that. Uh, he argued that against the idea of intellect being over the will, and this ties in with Scotus's understanding of human, human freedom. He has, so he takes the idea that human will is overpowers human intellect. And therefore, with that in mind, he takes that to God and says, well, God's will then must be over God's intellect. That at any time that God has complete and absolute power to subvert natural law, that if God wanted to, he could change how earthquakes are caused, that, you know, every time you clap your hands three times, an earthquake happens. And that he, he takes this in a sense to another level that God, in a way, can also um, subvert his own commandments. That if God did not want 10 commandments, he could have five commandments. If he didn't want commandments based on love, he can have them based on hate. He can shift however he wants to um, through his will over his own intellect. Um, so he so that in a sense kind of ties in with voluntarism. He also he also opposes Aquinas's view on university, which is the Aquinas's theory on analogy. Where remember that when I say God is good, it's not the it's an imperfect way of saying that God is good. John Scotus says no, that there is no problem with the analogy. When I understand God is good, I mean it in the exact sense. It's a perfect meaning in the sense of describing that God is good. Yes, but John Scotus would argue that there are some differences between the finite and the infinite, but the term does, is not in and of itself imperfect. Um, so he would go on to kind of separate philosophy and theology and, and begin to move that apart. Another step he takes is further in the Immaculate Conception of Mary, 
So in opposition to like Anselm and Bernard and Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, who held to a high regard in Mary, that doesn't mean that they had a lesser view of Mary. They would argue in some ways that she had original sin, like Thomas Aquinas, I'm slightly wrong on the time point, maybe uh, before her conception, some ways had original sin, but uh, John discovers with his understanding that God is capable of doing anything, even reversing original sin would have reversed for Mary's original sin as well. So argue more so for the immaculate conception of Mary as well. And then you have William of Ockham. Now, William of Ockham uh, is known as the invincible doctor. He was born in Southern England. He also studies theology at Oxford University. He's in a sense, in a way, an extreme nominalist. Uh, He joins the Franciscan order. Uh, He actually has to, because of his views, he summoned to Avnon to uh, to address issues of heresy. But really what the problem is, is that William of Ockham is, since he's a Franciscan, there's two camps in the Franciscan order. Like I said, Franciscans were mendicants, so they lived in a sense, had to follow a practice of absolute poverty. There are some, but of course that can only go so far as an order, you need places to stay and buildings and such. So some of these were gifted to Franciscans. And so in a sense, they began to own property and such. And so there was, a group of Franciscans, like the spiritualists, who believed in absolute poverty, and there were those who weren't. And so William Wacom sided with those Franciscans and was therefore excommunicated by the Pope and had to flee to the Holy Roman Empire and pretty much live there in, in protection for the rest of his life. One of the things that comes down to philosophers today from William Wacom is Occam's razor, that that we need to cut, you know, when you have a question, you're trying to answer or address an issue, you cut it, you cut down the all the minutiae down to a single point that this parsimony answer that you give this very short answer, this one simplistic answer, you, you move away all the, the fluff and you get down to the concrete simplistic answer to address this particular philosophical or theological problem. He'd also developed other teachings, and these are the teachings that will, in turn, in a way, be addressed by the Protestant reformers, more so than the early and late, I mean, the high scholastics. And we'll talk about that in the next slide, but knowing Occam's teachings is important. Occam, because of it, in a way, because of his excommunication, shifted arguments saying that the ecumenical councils uh, in church history are superior to the papacy. The papacy is not infallible. The councils are infallible. In fact, also the scriptures are infallible as well. He also made defenses and arguments for free speech of philosophy and that people could overthrow tyrants, um, which will be later picked up by John Locke. Um, uh, but these are certain uh, philosophical arguments. So what he's what he also takes from John Duns Scotus is that he splits philosophy and theology even further apart and that philosophy and science are autonomous outside of being controlled by faith and by divine revelation. And you can, and so in a sense, he creates the idea, the inertial initial steps towards what we see with the science revolution and around the alignment prior to and around the alignment period, which we see with empiricism and such. Um, he continues John Descotes' argument that God has absolute power. Uh, he can do whatever he wants, uh, except for any logical contradictions. Um, but his most, uh, uh, and I say a problematic teaching was the revival of semi-Pelagianism or in a sense, neo-Pelagianism as some scholars use uh, that unbelievers could merit God's grace by doing their best. Once again, reviving that old and turning against Augustinian teachings. He denied the bondage of sin upon humanity and fallen humanity 
as well. And so Occam's teachings uh, is later picked up by another student of his, Gabriel Beale. And so this will then shape uh, Western university thought. So we have at the end of the scholastics, at the end of the late scholastic age, right before into the Renaissance and the Reformation, you really have two camps of school thought. You had the Via Moderna way and the Via Antiquita way. Occam's and John Descotis and Gabriel Beale would follow what's called the Via Moderna, uh, the modern way. And those are individuals who are critical of established authorities and develop new ways of thinking. And this was the dominant view in universities. And Martin Luther, when he went through the university system, would admit that I am of Occam's school. And there's certain things that you see that picked up faith over philosophy and reason. Um, and that in some ways being critical of established authorities, but, but in a sense, Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers opposed, uh, uh, opposed the, uh, the late scholastics of Occam and Beale. And there were other men besides Luther too. You had prior to him, you had men like uh, Thomas Bradwardine, uh, Gregory Remini, John Wycliffe. These were uh, uh, Augustinian scholars who saw problems within the Via Moderna and opposed the Via Moderna because they saw it leading the church further and further away from, from certain biblical truths. And so there's that's when you see a split happening. So the uh, this there was also the, what was called the Via Antiquita, which were those who relied on established authorities as well. And not to say that the reformers were in that camp as well either. It's just that those, there were, it was a minority view within universities. But ultimately, the reformers would collectively denounce medieval scholastic theology. That doesn't mean they denounced the scholastic method, um, or, or in a sense, they would, they would also take a scholastic thought. For example, John Owen would take uh, Thomistic metaphysics and stuff into his arguments and ideas, but they denounced classicism in a sense as a whole because they, what they understood from Occam's teachings and Gabriel Beale's teachings and such because of how it impacts understanding of salvation um, and church authority. And so they wanted to address that. So like I said, at the very beginning of the lecture series is that the reformers kept what was good from the medieval period, but reformed the rest. And they addressed and they attacked these problems from the scholastic thoughts. So uh, hope you enjoyed this lecture series on the reviewing of the, revi uh, the rise of universities in the scholastic movement. Uh, next, we'll look at the high point of the papacy with a, uh, Pope Innocent III, as well as uh, dissenting movements like the Cathars and the Mendicant orders like the Franciscans and the, um, and the Dominicans. And then uh, we'll a couple more lectures left. So I hope you've enjoyed so far and you have a good one and, and see you all soon.